If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. It's Thursday, June 15th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got five briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, the CDC announced another 109,000 Americans died last year from drug overdoses. We're going to talk about one way to stop it. Second, new details on some scientists out in Wuhan, China. They had COVID symptoms well before the outbreak. Third, I've got an update for you on our battle for the Pacific. The country of Fiji is pushing China further away. Fourth, the weather pattern El Nino is hammering the African countries of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire this morning. We're going to talk about what's going on and why you should care. Fifth, some fascinating news out of Cuba, folks. Small businesses there are absolutely booming. I'm going to tell you why that could mean some serious trouble for the regime. Later, we close out the podcast with a question from Tony out in Indiana. He is worried that news about Ukraine might be propaganda. And I'm going to tell him that, yes, oftentimes it is. And I have proof. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning. We start today in Washington, D.C., where the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, they announced yesterday that 109,000 Americans died of drug overdoses last year. Now, that is virtually unchanged from a year ago, but it is substantially higher than it was 20 years ago, about five times higher. Now, a big part of that increase is due to the drug fentanyl, which is 100 times more powerful than morphine. It is a drug that is mostly created in labs in Mexico, which are, of course, supplied by pharmaceutical companies in China. And we know that because of an overwhelming amount of evidence from various U.S. government agencies like the DEA, but also the Department of Justice, which unveiled an indictment about six weeks ago that alleged this. 23 Chinese nationals working at a drug company in Wuhan, China, provided Mexican cartel members with very cheap precursor chemicals for this fentanyl, And they gave them advice, actually, on how to best ship this material to Mexico without getting caught. So according to reports from the Washington Post, these 23 Chinese nationals will never face justice. And that's because China protects them. Beijing refuses to extradite these citizens. But I'll tell you, that is no surprise to anybody who is watching this issue. In fact, here's what Democrat Representative David Trone of Maryland had to say about that. He sits on a committee that oversees this issue. Quote, China knows who the dealers are. We know who they are. Yet Beijing doesn't do anything about it. End quote. Well, perhaps that is going to be a message delivered by U.S. Secretary Anthony Blinken. He's heading to Beijing over the weekend to discuss, well, probably a range of issues. Although, don't get your hopes up. The State Department said this, quote, We're not going to Beijing with the intent of having some sort of breakthrough or transformation. End quote. Well, with that, let me now pivot from facts and data to my opinion and analysis. 
And this is going to be the counsel that I would offer the president this morning if I were in the Oval Office, helping him or her to decide how to address this drug crisis. So solving the China part of this problem is relatively straightforward. You just have to start killing people and blowing stuff up. So we know who these 23 Chinese nationals are, right? We know their travel patterns. We know who their families are. We know who they're and where their bank accounts are at. So we should do what any serious nation does in these kinds of situations, right? We hunt down the bad guys. And there are teams in both the U.S. military and other government agencies that are trained to do this. And I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that Communist Party bosses, they're going to get the message if their friends start dying. In other words, solving this problem requires political will and strength, right? Those are the only things that China ultimately listens to, at least based on my years of experience with these guys. So that is my message to the Oval Office this morning. I'm not sure that they will listen, but there it is. With that, let's move on to our second brief of the morning. And we've got two reports to talk about, folks, regarding how Chinese scientists likely caused the COVID pandemic with some help from unwitting U.S. taxpayers like you. So let's start with an investigative report released by two men uh, named Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi. Right? They are two journalists who broke the Twitter files scandal that I previously briefed you on a number of weeks ago. Well, these two men released a new report yesterday, picked up by Fox News and others, that flags this new development. Three scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were amongst the first people to have ever been infected by COVID-19. That was back in November of 2019. Right, the three scientists include a man named Ben Hu, who's a Chinese researcher who led gain-of-function efforts for that lab on coronaviruses. So, folks, take that information and compare it to this. Your taxpayer dollars were used for medical research in China. So here is that developing story as confirmed this week by the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Officials at the NIH funded a range of U.S. nonprofits and U.S. universities who in turn funded medical research in China. Let me give you just three examples. First, $1.4 million went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology to study the transmission of bat coronaviruses to humans. Next, Beijing's Academy of Military Medical Sciences got $500,000 to study the transmission of swine flu to humans. Finally, Wuhan University received $240,000 to study people and scientists who had been exposed to bat viruses, including at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, to be clear, the U.S. government did not give any of this money to those Chinese organizations directly, right? They instead gave it to U.S. nonprofits and universities such as EcoHealth Alliance, Duke University, and the University of California, Davis, who in turn passed it along to those Chinese outfits. For the record, all of these U.S.-based entities deny having anything to do with either starting or encouraging gain-of-function research in China. Certainly anything to do with COVID-19. Well, those are the facts and data this morning on two related reports. First, that Wuhan scientists studying coronaviruses were the first or amongst the first to suffer from COVID-19. And then second, their research on coronaviruses and other things was paid for in part by you your taxpayer dollars. 
So I'm not going to offer you my opinion or analysis on this one today, and here's why. Next week, the Director of National Intelligence is releasing declassified information related to the COVID-19 investigations on the origins of the outbreak. Now, it is believed that in that information, there should be more information on these three Wuhan scientists. So let's wait and see exactly what all the evidence shows. And then we are going to come back to this next week. Because I think, ladies and gentlemen, if we can reasonably prove either as a country or as a world that China and these agencies and universities are complicit in what happened, well, they must pay the price. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. Enjoy the following messages from our sponsoring partners. Although, one quick reminder, if you don't hear my voice telling you about a product or a service, then I don't endorse it. Instead, it's your podcast platform providing you with messages based on who they think you are. We'll be right back. Folks, there are two things that I speak a lot about on The Right Report. First, we live in a troubled world especially with China and the prospect of war with Beijing. Second, I talk about America's obesity crisis and how important it is to find ways to exercise and eat well. Thankfully, I've got a solution for both. ArcSeedKits.com, a provider of high-quality heirloom seeds that give you food security and a healthy body. Now, some of you have asked me, Brian, why should I pay a premium for heirloom seeds when I can buy cheaper stuff from online outlets or big box stores? Well, Arc Seed Kits give you the type of seeds that our grandparents had, right? You can save seeds from each year's garden crop and replant them year after year. Plus, Arc Seed Kits have all of the variety you need, folks. Listen to this. Six types of beans, four types of squash, seven tomatoes, two corn, two peas. Woo! Don't even get me started on the root crops, like beets and rutabaga and carrots. So all in all, we're talking about 65 varieties of fruits and vegetables. And here's the best part. These seeds come from a family-owned farm in northern Michigan. No mystery seeds that you might get from an online or big box store. So do yourself a favor and buy the all-in-one seed kit. Go to arcseedkits.com. That's arc, like Noah's Ark, arcseedkits.com. Enter right as a promo code, that is W-R-I-G-H-T, and you will get 10% off your order. So be prepared and invest in food security. Go to arcseedkits.com today. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with continued news from around the world. First, an update to our series called The Battle for the Pacific or that is, of course, the fight for influence and supremacy between the United States and China amongst Pacific Island nations. It's a series that I kicked off on May 23rd, if you missed uh, that brief. But to recap, I covered the 14 island nations that make up that region, plus why they are so important to us. And most critically, which nations are choosing our side in this fight and which ones are choosing China? Well, this morning, I've got an update on one island country, and that is the country of Fiji, and its very colorful prime minister, Mr. Rabuka, who is known locally as Rambo. So here's the update this morning as reported by the Guardian newspaper. Prime Minister Rabuka has signed an agreement with the country of New Zealand for that fellow island nation to provide his nation, Fiji, with military training and maritime security. Mr. Rabuka explained the rationale for this new agreement by saying, quote, if our systems and our values differ from China's, what cooperation can we actually get from them? End quote. 
He went on to add that he and his people should instead cooperate with those countries who have similar democratic values and systems. With that brief news, let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion, offering you this observation, folks. Back on May 10th, I told you about how both Fiji and the South American country of Paraguay were standing up to Beijing, either by rejecting them outright or embracing Taiwan instead. And I said then, and I must say once again, folks, these tiny little nations with a fraction of the military and the money of the United States, they are standing up to the world's greatest threat. And they are using voices and reason full of clarity and conviction. And I'll tell you, it's no surprise, I suppose, because both of these countries have very long histories of warrior cultures, right? They are not afraid to fight. And that is just a tremendous thing to see. And that is why I'm absolutely going to keep bringing you these stories of courage, because I think, frankly, that we here in America could use a shot of the same. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we leave Fiji this morning and we head next to the African countries of Ghana and the Ivory Coast. I've got an update for you on the brief that I first gave you on June 6th, right? That was a deep dive into how those two nations were getting absolutely hammered by rain. And that was putting at risk an increasing amount of the world's supply of cocoa beans and cashew nuts, as well as jeopardizing the livelihoods of some very poor farmers. Well, unfortunately, I've got some bad news to tell you about with details reported by CNBC News. Last Friday, cocoa prices shot up to their highest level since 2016, and that's because the rains are not letting up. The reason for that, by the way, is the El Nino weather pattern. And as we've discussed here on The Right Report, that is affecting things like wheat crops in China, coffee crops in Indonesia, and now... We've got cocoa crops in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, which, by the way, have 60% of the world's supplies. And that means two things. First, prices for chocolate are going to be going way up, especially dark chocolate. Second, these farmers and the people of these countries are going to be under terrible financial strain, which could make them a pretty attractive target for predators like China, frankly, or even Islamic extremists. I spoke about that on June 6th. So that is why I am going to be keeping a very close eye on this region. And no, it is not just because I love chocolate. Finally, this morning, let's talk about something else that we should be putting on your radar. There is a slow but steady change happening in the country of Cuba, and it has to do with more small private businesses operating there than ever before. So here's what we're hearing this morning as reported by the French media outlet AFP. And let's start with something that you might not know. Before the year 2021, small businesses in Cuba were not legally allowed to operate, only state-run or sanctioned stores, although there was a little bit of black market activity. Well, then in August of 2021, the government approved a law allowing some small and medium-sized businesses, and they did that largely because the COVID pandemic had just knocked that government on their backsides, and they were scrambling for both new revenue and a way to keep the people, well, at peace. Since then, these businesses, the small and medium-sized businesses, have popped up like mushrooms after a rainstorm, or so that is how it was described by these AFP journalists who visited Cuba. And I'll tell you, the data say they got a point. A report by the United Nations show a dramatic increase of these small and medium-sized businesses, with uh, about 22% of them involved in construction, and another 20% in restaurants and tourist activities. It's just a couple of examples. 
So I bring this news to you, ladies and gentlemen, because I know something else about another communist country, and that is North Korea. And I'm seeing some parallels. So let me tell you about some very intriguing history. Back in 2009, the leader of North Korea at the time, Kim Jong-il, he was growing pretty nervous. And that's because there was a new group of North Koreans who were becoming a bit too powerful. They're called the merchant class. And they were and are sort of little vendors at local markets that were buying and selling goods. Now, dictator Kim, he allowed these markets and these business owners to flourish because much like Cuba, the leader of North Korea and the country itself, well, they were facing some economic troubles. And this dictator wanted to give the people an economic outlet. So slowly, these folks in North Korea were growing in size and influence. Well, Kim Jong-il noticed and he decided he could not stand for their growing power. So he did this. He devalued his country's currency. And by doing so, it wiped out virtually all of the wealth that these budding entrepreneurs had built. But here's the thing. His plan backfired, right? These merchants protested, which is unheard of in North Korea. And it shocked the regime. And then Kim Jong-il did something that is rarely done by dictators, and it never happens in North Korea. He backed off. And not only that, he killed the guy who carried out the currency reforms, right? It was a guy named Pak Nam-ji, and he was executed in public by a firing squad. The point, ladies and gentlemen, is that these tyrannical regimes, whether it be North Korea or Cuba, Right When they allow their people to get a taste of freedom, especially economic freedom, that is a hard memory to take out of their mouths. Now, it doesn't mean that there's going to be massive amounts of political or economic change you know, anytime soon, but unquestionably, power dynamics do start to change. So let's see if we start to see little bits of that in the Cuban people. God willing, a new generation of Cubans will rise up. It has been a long time coming. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. So enjoy this next break. Remembering that if you don't hear my voice, I don't endorse it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. Tony out in Evansville, Indiana, wrote in asking about news from Ukraine. So he said that the media is reporting right now that Kiev is allegedly doing pretty good on the battlefield with their counteroffensive. But as Tony asked me, quote, how do we know whether that is true? Right? How can we trust that the media is really telling us what's actually going on? End quote. Well, Tony, you can't. And here is one of the reasons that I know that to be true. Last December, right, two spies sat down for a conversation. One was the head of the U.S. intel community. Her name is uh, Avril Haynes. She's the director of national intelligence. The other spy was Sir Jeremy Fleming. He's the director of the British intel organization called GCHQ, which is sort of like our NSA. At any rate, they were talking about the war in Ukraine and the issue of propaganda came up. Incredibly, they admitted that they were conducting information warfare in their own countries to influence their own people. And that is wildly unlawful, at least in America. So here's what they said, as described by the BBC, The Guardian, and The Washington Examiner. 
But actually, first, just to understand the context for this story, we should understand that before the war in Ukraine, spy services rarely declassified information for public consumption, mostly to protect something called sources and methods. But as Sir Fleming said, they chose to declassify information regarding Ukraine and Russia to spread it into the media. So here's his quote explaining why they did that. Quote, you've put a lot of effort into getting secret intelligence, but I always think that there's no point in collecting it unless you use it to get the intelligence out there and use it to pre-bunk. All right, well, what does pre-bunk mean? Well, as America's Avril Haines explained, quote, we saw that the Russians were looking to create a pretext for the invasion, and we wanted to sort of debunk that and help people understand that this was a false narrative, end quote. Okay, so they later went on to further explain, well, precisely what they were talking about, right? And they said that they had three goals in debunking or pre-bunking the false narrative. First, they wanted to counter Russia's talking points, okay? Second, they wanted to impact or change the minds of Russians themselves, from Putin all the way down to a local citizen. Third, they wanted to influence Moscow's allies, right, to get them to abandon or pressure Putin in whatever way possible. Well, no surprise, I suppose, in all of those goals. Spy services use propaganda to try to influence foreign audiences to do stuff all the time. But let's ask something. Was this propaganda campaign successful? Right? Did it change the hearts and minds of foreign leaders or foreign people? Well, here's the answer coming from, once again, Avril Haines. And I'll tell you, Tony in Indiana, uh, I don't think you're going to like this answer. Here's her quote. <clears throat> in Russia, we basically had no impact. Meanwhile, we were not that impactful in other countries either that already had sort of taken on the narrative of what the Russians were pushing, end quote. However, she said, quote, our impact was far greater in the West, end quote. In other words, the global propaganda campaign by the West failed to impact audiences abroad, but it worked on audiences in the West on their own people. Let me tell you something, folks, that is not supposed to happen, at least not at the CIA. That is a legal no-no to put out propaganda operations that you know or suspect that could end up twisting the minds of the American people. But Avril Haines said in this interview that, yeah, that's what's happened. So more to come on this, Tony, but I'm going to tell you, your concern about either CIA propaganda or fake news shaping the Ukraine war narrative, well... It's not some conspiracy theory. It's happening. And you just got confirmation of that this morning. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. To the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day. <laughs>